Welcome to The Plant Pod, grow your mind, feed your soul. I'm your host, Carly Bodrug, journalist turned food blogger and the girl behind the popular plant-based page, Plant You. I want to start this episode with a question. When you think about veganism and plant-based eating, what comes to mind? For me, it often conjures up scenes of a white woman grabbing a green smoothie at Whole Foods after a yoga class, which is probably because this is the type of imagery that is often used to market vegan products. Now, as a white woman who loves green smoothies and yoga myself, I identify with this image. But the problem is, when this is the only picture of veganism we're seeing, it can reinforce exclusivity within the movement. So today we're talking about it. I have brought on EA Baco of the popular Instagram page EA Loves Life to discuss the concept of white veganism, collective liberation, and fostering a more inclusive environment within the vegan community. EA is a graduate of Ohio State University with a bachelor's degree in Spanish literature and international business. She's a social justice advocate and believes in fighting for total liberation for both humans and non-human animals. She's passionate about racial justice issues and is an advisory board member of Plant the Power 614, which is a grassroots nonprofit that seeks to cultivate a caring plant-based community for people of color. As well, she is the co-founder of VAAO, Vegans Against All Oppression. EA is originally from Nigeria and was raised in the United States. Before we get started, I encourage you to follow EA on Instagram at EA Loves Life. I've included her handle in the show notes. She posts this incredible educational content and really furthers the important conversations that take place during this show. If you enjoy this episode, please take a screenshot and share it in your stories with your thoughts, taking both me at Play You and EA at EA Loves Life, and we'll be sure to share the love. As well, since this is a newer podcast, your five-star reviews literally mean the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Without further ado, EA, welcome to the Plant Pod. Thank you so much for having me, Carly. You are one of my absolute favorite people to follow on Instagram because you share the most insightful information. You always have these really on-point tweets that you share. I just, I can't get enough. And I guess a good place to start is by hearing about how you found your way to veganism. Yeah, thank you so much, Carly. I've noticed you around and I really appreciate your support. So yeah, it's really great to come full circle. And now that you have a podcast, we can chat about these things. So my introduction to veganism, it happened progressively over time. So initially, my dad was diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer. And just knowing that cancer runs in my family, I started on a path of doing my own research. And I found a documentary called Forks Over Knives, which talks about the connection between our diets and our health condition. And they made the connection that, you know, if you eat a whole food plant-based diet, you're not gonna be able to cure cancer or cure diabetes or any other chronic disease, but you will be able to significantly reduce your chances of contracting these diseases. And that really stood out in my mind. And initially I just started eating more and more whole food plant-based, but for some reason I didn't make the connection to eggs and dairy, but I was, I had significantly reduced those things out of my diet and I had felt amazing. And I was like, I felt, I feel this mental clarity. I feel like this weight is lifted off of me. You know, initially I dropped a couple pounds, but that's not like the significant motivating factor or anything like that. And I went on a path of going on YouTube and 
and wanting to know what are the ethical reasons people eat plant-based diets. And I came across a couple videos. Um, one was Dairy is Scary by Erin Janus. And it's a very graphic video. So content warning, it's not for everyone. And there is some pretty um, spicy language that she uses as well. But she really like lays out how dairy cows are exploited and how the calves are separated from their mother on the first day and how they're continually uh, forced to be bred and also to be impregnated um, in order to become pregnant so that we can take the milk that's meant for their calves. And that shocked and horrified me because it's basic biology, but you never think about it. You think that dairy cows, they just make milk and that's what they do. But when you actually find out the horrors of the animal agriculture industry and what they do to dairy cows, I decided I couldn't participate in that anymore. And then I went a step further and I went to look up eggs and I, and I came across some videos by uh, Bite Size Vegan. Um, but basically, as soon as I had this information, like I was ready to rock and roll and I made the decision to go vegan the same day. Um, and I immediately like, I, I can't remember the exact date that I went vegan, but it was one of those things where I had a few non-vegan items in my fridge and I either finished them up or, or tossed them out, but no one ever remembers what happens, right? <laughs> I love that you just like dived in and I'm curious because it took me a while to transition whether you had any hurdles kind of in your transition period to veganism or going plant-based. Yeah so from like transitioning to plant-based to going vegan that was a three-month process for me. Some people it takes way longer but for me that was all I really needed to make the decision. I think I had some like obstacles in terms of my mindset one of them was if I travel to like, I really love traveling was like, if I travel to really cool places like Spain, like I'll never be able to have paella or any of like the traditional cuisines of the countries I visit. But then over time for me, like the ethical part really stood out. And I was like, even if these foods are like amazing in their um, original formats, well, it's not worth it if I'm oppressing other beings. So then I found out way later on than that, that a lot of these um, traditional cuisines are being veganized. So I was like, well, if I travel, I would just find places that sell the, the veganized versions of the traditional cuisine. So it all really just fell in place for me. And I'm curious what your experience has been as a black woman within the vegan community. And I just want to say, I really do think you're moving the needle and fostering a more inclusive environment, starting these conversations about inclusivity within the vegan community. So when I first became vegan, I didn't want to do any form of activism. It was more of, I wanted to live in alignment with my values. And I'm like, I see myself as someone who's compassionate towards human beings. So why wouldn't I extend my circle of compassion to, to include other sentient beings? And then my friend took me to a, um, a veg fest here in Cleveland, close to where I live. And I heard this speech by Philip Wollen where he talks about leaving animals off our plate. And he had this quote, something about going vegan is addition. It's just adding one person to the movement, but becoming an activist is multiplication. And after these like horrific vi videos, unfortunately he showed us of like the massacre of, um, of kangaroos in Australia and what they do to bears in order to get specific products from them like bile to cure diseases they think it works in a magical way in some countries around the world I was just like I cannot 
just be vegan for myself. I have to become an activist. I have to multiply this movement, not me by myself personally, but I want to become part of that process. So I started doing activism locally. I looked up groups through Facebook and meetup.com and I joined my activist community. And initially what um, came to mind is that I was the only black person in these groups, which wasn't a big deterrent for me because I live in Ohio and yes, it's kind of a diverse state, specifically where I live in Columbus, it's more metropolitan, but the outside surrounding areas are very rural and very white. And growing up, I you know, grew up in a very white school district. So I've, I'm used to being like the only black person. So that didn't significantly stand out to me. But the first time I really noticed being an outlier in a vegan space was when um, one of my really friendly, you know, activist friends did not mean any harm by it at all. But they were like, you're a black woman. Like, we really need people like you. Like, you should start joining, like, you know, organizations to to be an advocate because your voice is so needed and I was like well I never saw myself as a black woman in this space like I just saw myself as another activist so like they didn't mean any harm by it but it just really stood out to me that like it almost felt like a push towards me being involved in like token being tokenized in a way and I was I was slightly uncomfortable with that even though I knew they didn't mean any harm by it. Through my own educational journey, I've learned that veganism is actually rooted in a lot of ways within Black culture and Black homes. So it's really interesting to me that you were finding yourself to be the only Black person at these activism events, when I believe it's something like 8% of Black people in North America identify as vegan. So, so why do you think that is? Yeah, that's actually a correct statistic. And I think the reason why that is, is because there's many different formats that we can call activism. And I think what the black and brown community focus on is more of outreaching to their own community members um, in, in the sense that I see more black activists now that I've become more involved in those spaces working on issues that have to do with food justice. So actually like fundraising and pulling together resources and teaching, teaching um, local community farming efforts and I think that they're more hands on the ground in terms of providing for people's needs versus what I was going to, which was the type of outreach events um, that I think white activists are more drawn to where you do like the, the cube of truth, where you stand with like the TV screens and the awful graphics of what happens to um, farmed animals. I was also going to like the rodeo protests into um, other forms of protests like, um, we had a circus protest that I attended, just various different forms of protest. And I also felt in those spaces that I wasn't making a difference. There was lots of cars driving by, some would cheer you on, others would be like, get a job. And I didn't feel like people were stopping and conversing and wanting to go vegan because of my presence there. And slowly over time, I discovered that there's this whole, you know, black and brown community of activists who are focusing on things like you know, having communal dinners and lunches and just building community and building friendships and bringing people in who are not vegan or plant-based by talking about health-related issues. In the black and brown community, you know, there's a high incidence of things like heart disease, cancer, diabetes because of the diet. And the diet 
is a result of colonization and imperialism and also the legacy of slavery because here in the United States where, where I live, um, they actually segregated communities intentionally and separated white and, and brown people um, post-slavery because they wanted to assert you know, power dynamics against our communities. So even though I'm originally from Nigeria, I understand the history of this country and how people were segregated in the sense that um, you know, black and brown people were not able to maintain the farms that they had. Um, well, today we're looking at 98% of farms are owned by white people. So there's a huge crisis in terms of food justice and food sovereignty where black people and brown people are not able to grow their own food like they used to be able to. And because they're not able to do that, they're inundated with what some people call food swamps where in place of them being able to cultivate their own land and grow their own food, they're exposed to fast food restaurants that intentionally come into the communities and provide extremely poor quality food, which means that you know people are getting more of the diseases I mentioned. There are also um, reports that young children are not able to concentrate and do as well in school because they're not eating quality nutrition. And all of this is intentional. It's not by accident that these things are happening. You know, if you put a community in an area where they have limited resources and the resources that they do have are of really poor quality, they can never come up in society and become co-equal with the dominant group. And do you think this is why there is maybe some differences in the activism strategies because black and people of color communities come from a place of understanding at the barriers from people actually going vegan? Absolutely. I think that that's why there is such a huge difference in the activism styles. And for me, I grew up um, relatively pr privileged. You know, when I was younger, I would say that my family was struggling a lot. But the older we got, you know, we have a really, um, you know, tenacious spirit as immigrants to work hard and to pull ourselves up. So when I was older, you know, we became part of the middle class and I didn't have to worry about, you know, food insecurity or, you know, where I was going to lay my head at night and things like this. Like, you know, my parents worked diligently to where we were able to come up in society and have all of our needs taken care of. So thinking about food security, unfortunately, was not one of the first things that came to mind for me when I went into vegan activism. So I gravitated towards white spaces because those are the most visible spaces online. If you go to YouTube or you join Facebook groups, you don't really see too many um, you know, black and brown groups, but maybe that's changed because I have been vegan for years. So maybe there are more visible, you know, spaces for black and brown activists now. Um, so, I mean, I immediately saw like, you know, these events, like, you know, let's go to this protest, you know, let's form this cube of truth and, and things like that. And I just gravitated toward those spaces because in the back of my mind, unconsciously, I never thought about myself as someone who was privileged to be able to eat a certain diet and have access to certain types of food. But over time, my understanding has grown and changed. And I absolutely understand the struggles of um, communities of color where I live and all around the world. Do you think now participating in both forms of activism that there is a place for both? Or do you think that we need an overhaul? That's very challenging to say because I believe that there is a place for all forms of activism. 
but I also believe in the overhaul idea, and here's why. I believe that the forms of activism that I've been in, involved in in the past, they need to be made more strategic and more effective. So protests can work. Um, education and like handing people flyers and maybe, you know, passing out food and, and things like that, all of these things can work. The problem is that we need to get a hold of the marketing message you know, because we're in this compassionate space, a lot of people forget that we have to think of ourselves in a way that we're trying to influence and encourage people to change their lifestyle that they've had for, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 50 years, 80 years, depending on how old that person is. So you have to think like a marketer. You have to think about how people are emotionally wired and a lot of um, vegans, and even I was in this space initially, think a lot about statistics. We're going to convince them because we're going to blow them away, you know, about the fact that, you know, 75 billion land animals and 2 trillion, you know, marine life is killed every year. And they're just going to be like, wow, those numbers are so huge. I'm going to go vegan today. And those types of messages, um, they sell later on. They sell once you have an awareness of how you're contributing to systems of oppression and how we can divest and make it a better world. But initially facts and statistics and data doesn't really sell with the common person because we're so emotionally wired because like we're telling people in our street activism, like, you know, you're contributing to these animals being murdered for food and look at these horrible graphics and images and don't you wanna stop doing that? Well, most people, most people don't grow their own food and raise their own chickens. So they don't feel personally responsible for other animals being killed for food. And, and, and on top of that, there's that feeling of the lack of sense of responsibility for what happens in animal agriculture. Then add to that the fact that some of the messages that vegans put out there are homophobic, fatphobic, transphobic, um, you know, anti-Semitic, anti um, racist, and sexist, and the list can just go on and on and on of where we're missing the boat in terms of the, the way that we're presenting ourselves and marketing ourselves. So we have to think about the fact that the, the strategies can work, but they have to be modernized to speak to today's people, and they have to be respectful. What do you feel is the most effective strategy in helping people come to veganism? I don't think that there's one particular one, but I think that there's things that um, we should promote and things that we should uh, demote. So in terms of things that I feel we should promote is talking about food justice, you know, equality and food and land sovereignty, because a lot of vegans are like, well, I want people to go vegan who have access to go vegan. And I'm like, that's great. I think it's absolutely great to encourage people who have the means and resources to go vegan. But at the same time, here's what we're missing and something that my brother reminded me of yesterday. Well, he travels a lot and he was just in the Caribbeans. Well, he was like, well, I'm gonna cook this meal for my friends and I'm gonna go to this grocery store and they're gonna have all this fresh fruits and vegetables and produce because it's a tropical country. Well, here's the catch. We have this thing called food dumping where in these um, you know, tropical countries, they grow the best quality produce there. Fruits, vegetables, mangoes, everything, you name it. And they ship it to the Western world. 
So what's left over for them is the extremely poor quality food. And then they import, this is the food dumping part, all of the worst quality food over there. So he was shocked to find out when he went to the grocery store that they don't have an abundance of fruits, vegetables, and all these kinds of things because they're exported to Western countries. And then they dump, you know, milk and dairy and dairy products, all of the worst cuts of meat that you can imagine, they dump it over there. So when we're when we're talking about just go vegan and that solves a big problem, well, we're also creating a problem because we're putting an increased demand on these nutritious foods and we're taking them away from communities that also deserve to have access to their own food supply. So I think that vegans need to, I think the main thing that vegans really need to do right now is research the food economy and the food system. And then from there, we can talk about how we fix it. So when you fix the broken system, people are gonna be encouraged to go vegan because they have access. It's interesting when you go down this route of looking at the source of your food, what I experienced personally is this realization that really no food is without cruelty. And in that same vein, it's almost impossible to be kind of a pure vegan. So you could be eating even like a raw food diet or something and not realizing that your avocados are tied to uh, the abuse of migrant workers. I mean, do you kind of agree that there is no real true vegan out there? I absolutely agree with that. And I'll add to that the portion of activism I think we should demote, which is the blaming people part. I see that far too often. And I think that that's what you were leading into is that there's this holding people accountable for eating a purest vegan diet when there's no such thing as a pure vegan. Exactly. And it's, it becomes almost this purity contest, right? Which then takes the focus off the real issues and solutions and almost becomes like this egotistical contest online. Do you, do you see that happen? All the time. And I've seen it happen to your, to you on your account many times, like you're in the food space, but I also think that you're so brave for what you do, because when you put your food out there, it leaves like this big window for people to like scrutinize and harass and like nitpick every single thing that you do, like down to the point where people were like getting on you for sprinkles. I was really shocked to see that. I'm like, there's so many things that not everybody can know every single derivative of like animal-based ingredients. Like we need to show compassion and show grace because if we want other human beings to be compassionate towards animals, we have to be compassionate towards other human beings. Yeah, I think it goes back to the fact that why would anybody want to try going vegan or being part of the vegan community if they feel like they're going to be scrutinized for every single little thing on the plate. And that's kind of the, the message we put out when we do put these people on these platforms and then nitpick every single thing that they're ingesting or whichever else, right? Absolutely. And I think that people don't understand the futility of criticizing people for what they eat, because at the end of the day, um, in most countries around the world, 
um, that the animal agriculture industry is subsidized and also they receive bailouts. So whatever they don't sell, they're still gonna be compensated with our tax dollars. So you're criticizing someone and holding them accountable when the system at large is going to make our rejection and our boycott of animal um, products basically nil because they will come in and subsidize the difference of what we, what we as vegans don't purchase. That's a really good point. I think this all leads really naturally into the conversation about white veganism. And this is something that you've created so much amazing educational content on your Instagram page. So if anybody's listening, um, EA loves life, you have to follow. Whenever I share content related to white veganism, I get a lot of direct messages from white followers just feeling like it is discriminatory in a way. Can you talk a little bit about what white veganism is? Absolutely. So the term white veganism has been a term that's been floated around for many years. Unfortunately, I don't know who originated it. In the past, I've tried to do a Google search and I've not found it. But it is the term that is is most commonly used now. And in some ways, it's... Um, a synonym alongside mainstream veganism. And the, the term white is not meant to denote white skin color. It's meant to denote white supremacy. So some people have asked for that term to be changed. Like, why can't it be called bland veganism? Why can't it be called something that doesn't include, you know, a color word? And I believe that the reason it has to include a color word is because we're talking about the system of white supremacy. So you can be a black, brown, indigenous person and still promote or uphold white supremacy, regardless of skin color, because um, internalized oppression from years and years of colonization has be been ingrained into almost every person, especially people who have been um, colonized. So when I first started, you know, my form of vegan activism, I was following all the quote unquote, you know, white vegan saviors on social media. You know, I won't say specific names, but you could do your own research and figure out who these people are. And they were practicing white veganism. And what white, white veganism is, it's a form of veganism that ignores, you know, interconnected oppression. It ignores that people can be vegan and also experience sexism, racism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, fatphobia, anti-Semitism, and the list goes on and on and on. That we as vegans, we need to make our community safe for everyone, especially if we want this to be a worldwide movement. And it's not, um, we're going to protect people's feelings things. It's a, we're going to respect people thing. I think we saw a really good example of this recently when there was this uprising to stop comparing veganism and the factory farming to the Holocaust. And I'm, I mean, I'm so glad I, we saw this kind of happen and people speak out about it because I've always felt uncomfortable with the comparison and it's used so often. Can you speak to some of the reasons that comparisons like that are really wrong? Absolutely. So the comparison between factory farming and what's happening in, you know, what's happening to the Jewish community is, is very alarming because 
Jewish people today are still experiencing anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism hasn't gone away. And when we think about um, perpetuating oppression against marginalized groups, one of, that, one of the ways that embodies itself is we take away their experiences and we water them down and we use terminology that was used to define their oppression and use it to define anything else. It doesn't matter what it is, but we'll take away a term that was used to define their oppression and use it for whatever other cause we want to do. And doing that in and of itself is a form of anti-Semitism. So if we haven't um, gotten Jewish people to the point where they're not discriminated against because of their ethno-religion, we can't say that another form of oppression is the animal holocaust because, you know, till today's date, the, the population of Jews and Romani people has not recovered from what it was prior to what's called the Shoah. The Shoah is another term that they use to describe the Holocaust. So though they're still being so oppressed in many different ways, you know, within the media, um, within um, our daily lives that we don't even recognize the forms of anti-Jewish conspiracy that appear because anti-Jewish conspiracy has been around for thousands of years. So it kind of seeps into different aspects of our lives without us realizing it. And I'm still researching this and learning it for myself because it's so subtle that it's, it's things that you would never think about. Um, you know, one form that people might be familiar with is the fact that people think, you know, Jewish people are the elite leaders of the world and they control everything. Like they control the media, um, they control like politics and certain aspects of life. life. Um, that's an anti-Semitic Jewish conspiracy right there. And so when we're making these comparisons between the Holocaust and um, you know, factory farming, it's continuing to further their trauma that they still have not recovered from in many different ways. However, we will see some Jewish people, and my Jewish friends have told me, some of them might be a little bit disconnected from their, their ancestors who experienced the Holocaust. So it doesn't bring up the same emotional memories to make those comparisons. So they might use those comparisons, but I don't think that it's a place for non-Jewish people to make those comparisons when you have no personal connection to it. I just always find it interesting when people continue to use terms that have been validated as hurtful to a community. And especially within the vegan community, it makes me ponder because as human beings, we're animals as well, right? So it's very odd when you can't extend the same compassion that you're extending to, say, cows and pigs and factory farm animals to our fellow human beings. It's just very odd. I agree. And I've done a lot of looking into this whole, you know, an animal oppression and human oppression thing, which led me to look into um, the Holocaust comparisons. And it doesn't really take research to have compassion. Like I did that because I wanted to know personally, but if a Jewish person told me like, hey, this thing that you're doing is harmful, I would just stop doing it regardless of whether I knew the background or not. Exactly, it's, it's like, you know, several, several people have spoken up and said this comparison is harmful. So there are so many other ways that you can describe the horror of factory farming without using that comparison. Why keep using it and then inflicting harm on this community? It just makes no sense. 
Yeah, I think it all comes down to ego because what's being said by those certain vegan activists or influencers or whatever you want to call them is that um, people who are calling it the Holocaust are using the accurate term, that that's accurately what's happening to non-human animals, but that's absolutely not true. We're not exterminating animals because of their ethno-religion. Animals have no religion. So it, it's not the same. It's not the same comparison. It's not the right word to use. So I've been consuming and learning so much from you. And a lot of what you're talking about is what you have called collective liberation, extending this activism to many different causes and facets. And I have personally used the term intersectional uh, before to describe why I'm vegan, because I feel like morally it just speaks to how I try to live my life by causing the least harm I can to others. And you've done a lot of education about why the term intersectionality is probably not the best way to describe this. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that? Yes, there's many reasons for it. I think the way that I came to it was from uh, reading this author called Afco. Her and her sister still wrote a book called Afroism, which I highly recommend. And I also listened to AFCO on podcast, and she makes some really great points about intersectionality. Intersectionality is not like the worst term to use to describe interconnected oppression. And I'm, I'm not saying that no one should use it. I think a lot of people are using it because it's easy to understand that more than one form of oppression are connected. So the term in and of itself is accurate, but to me and to AFCO, it just doesn't go far enough. And the reason for that is because the framework is based on a specific context. And the context is that uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a law professor and civil rights activist, uh, she coined the term to basically describe the oppression that Black women were going through when there wasn't a way to describe it in a legal, legal framework. So to give an example, it was when in the workplace, an employer would say, we're not racist, we hire Black men. We're also not sexist, we hire white women. So there's no space to say, well, I'm experiencing you know, discrimination at work because I'm specifically a black woman. You know, I'm experiencing racism and sexism at the same time. Well, Kimberly Crenshaw created a word called intersectionality that brings that together, it creates a bridge. And people found that term so attractive because we see multiple forms of, of oppression connecting that way in many areas of life. So that's why we have the term intersectional feminism, because we're seeing that um, feminists have so many other, you know, backgrounds and barriers that connect with the feminist struggle. So that word just fits in that space perfectly. But then what happened is that it kind of became a buzzword that every single movement started using intersectional. And then it's almost gone to this point where it's watered down and it has no meaning. So if you're not someone who's fighting against multiple forms of oppression, you're just like, Today I spoke about BLM. So I'm an intersectional animal rights activist because I've mentioned it one time in like a post that I shared. So it's like people aren't really being held accountable towards um, speaking about these multiple forms of oppression because it's now just a term that's free and available to everyone. Makes perfect sense. And as someone who's vegan or if you're vegan and listening, how important 
do you think it is to be participating in these conversations about other forms of oppression that, say, marginalized groups face? I think it's essential. I think that it's key. I think that there's a way to do it and be strategic about it because I think that there's this huge fear that there's 75 billion land animals that are, you know, killed every day or exploited every single day for food and like, you know, two trillion marine life. And then we're going through this planetary crisis right now where the climate is changing at at an alarming rate. And people are like, anything you do to stop the conversation about animals and uh, talk about something else is time that we're losing to salt to solve the animal justice, animal liberation fight. But what we have to understand is that all of these forms of oppression are interconnected. And that's what I like to call collective liberation, that none of us are free until all of us are free. So if you're somebody who is advocating uh, for, let's say you're advocating against ableism, for example, one of the things that we do to non-human animals is we actually make them disabled. Um, there are many different ways that we do this. Like we've we've taken the the DNA of, say, for example, cows, so they produce this astronomical amount of milk, and we were, people think like, oh, if cows aren't milk, they're going to explode, and that's why they need to be milked for the dairy industry. No, they've always been able to make enough milk to feed their children, but we've genetically modified them to have an overproduction, and we've we've basically overwritten their DNA and made them in some form disabled. So if you're um, an animal rights activism, or you're an animal rights activist, and you speak against um, ableism, you're also speaking against that for not only humans, but you're speaking out against that for non-human animals. That's one way that you can connect the two. So it's not that you need to like have a flag every single day, like today is BLM day, tomorrow is anti-Asian hate day, the next day after that is going to be all about like X, Y, and Z social justice issue. No, it's just finding these forms of oppression, how they are, they overlap each other, how they relate to animal rights. And even if you don't think that they relate to animal rights, for example, like the housing crisis could also be an animal rights issue because if you don't have a home, you don't have a stove, like how are you gonna make your plant-based food? Like you have to solve the housing crisis to get people a place to lay their head at night, to wake up and to be able to cook their plant-based food. So in some way, shape or form, things that seem completely unrelated are totally related. The one thing I wanted to say, if someone is listening and they're like, wow, I really love the idea of this concept of collective liberation. What's your tips to kind of get started and engage in this type of activism? Yeah, I would say if you want to get started talking about collective liberation would be to follow, you know, um, brown and black activists and, you know, women activists who are talking about different interconnected struggles already, um, reading their posts, sharing their posts, and then kind of finding your own space within that to like, um, you know, finding your own creative style and making your own posts and definitely reading up about it. There's a lot of books out there. And, you know, if you want, I can, you know, provide a list of ones that I suggest, but read about it and just share the messages of people who are already talking about these things. Do you think there's an issue within the vegan community that kind of the face of it is white? I definitely think that that's an issue because 
there are so many people out there who want to join this movement, but they don't know that this is a movement for everyone because of how it presents. And you can even simply do a Google search of like of vegans and the images that come up are all white people. And that's not to say that, you know, white people should not be included in this movement because all of humanity should be included in this movement, but that we should see more diverse representation so that people know that this movement is for everybody. So say if a brand is listening and they're wanting to include more people of color in their campaigns, which they obviously should, how do they on the same leaf avoid tokenism? I think that there has to be a long-standing commitment. Um, it's not to say that like, just if you're, if you're a brand, like just reaching out to a brown and black activist and saying, you know, we're gonna include you in this campaign because we love the, the work you do and you stand out to us as like a diverse individual is a bad thing. It's only tokenization if that's the only time you do it. You do that to get your credit as, oh, we featured, you know, a brown or black activist. So we've done the diversity work. We're good. It's an ongoing commitment to continue to feature diverse activists. And not only that, it's a commitment to um, understand your biases and educate your audience about your biases. And in addition to that, it's about paying um, marginalized groups equitably and fairly. I love that and completely agree. We need way more inclusivity within the movement and representation of minorities. And I guess to wrap this up, I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners. Yes, I would just say that um, listening to this podcast episode is a really good step already because you probably heard some things that you never even thought about before because some of these things I haven't really talked so openly and explicitly about. So don't get down on yourself if you're someone who's never been in the space of talking about collective liberation. Um, think of this as a growing opportunity. You know, don't feel like you have to defend, like I've been doing this thing wrong for so much time. And, you know, this is completely gonna blow me out of the water. Now I have to change everything. I have to scrap everything and start over. It's not like that. I started doing activism, you know, primarily focused on, you know, white vegan activism, because that's all I was exposed to. But over time, I changed my feed, I changed my approach. So just be encouraged that everyone starts from somewhere. And like, this is a great learning opportunity for you. Love that. That's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us. I think this was a fabulous episode. And I'm so excited for people to listen and learn, because it's been so educational as well. Thank you so much, Carly. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. Well, folks, that is it. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Plant Pod. I think we just scratched the surface of some incredibly important topics this week, which I hope to delve into further in future episodes. I'll see you next week.